Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, friends, this morning we're returning to the book of Matthew. We took off for Christmas. I wasn't here last week on New Year's Day. So please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25 is a part of the Olivet Discourse where Jesus addresses his disciples there on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is just about a four or five minute walk uh, from the Temple Mount area where Jesus had just come. And there his disciples had asked the question, what will be the signs of your coming? And so Jesus there began to speak with them about the signs of the close of the age. We read that in Matthew 24, 3. Their question is, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and what will be the sign of the close of the age? And that question, it prompts Jesus to give his most lengthy discussion of end of days material. And so if you read through the Gospels, all four of them, and you begin to read through, there's a statement here and a statement there But here now, in two chapters, Jesus gives his most lengthy discussion of end times material outside of the book of Revelation. Almost 100 verses here in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 will point to the various evidences that will occur leading up to the last days or as part of the last days. And so as we've been looking, Jesus warns his disciples. He warned them of a few things. One, he said, there will be a rise of spiritual deception in the last days. Things will look spiritual. Things will look godly. Things might even look Christian, but they will not be. A rise of spiritual deception, uh, deception, false prophets, false teachings, even false messiahs would rise up, Jesus said. Jesus warned, we looked, and he warned of geopolitical and geological instability. There would be wars. There would be rumors of wars. Kingdom would rise against kingdom, nation against nation. He said that the earth itself would be unstable with various earthquakes and so on. He warned of famines. He warned of pestilences in the last days. And then he added these words just after those warnings. In Matthew 24, 8, he says, but all these are but the beginning of birth pains. And so then we see in verse 9 and following, still to follow would be the persecution of the church. Tribulation would follow. Lawlessness would follow. And I compared it to that mentality which is essentially every man for himself. The love of many would grow cold and people would just be all out for themselves and how to save themselves. All of those are events leading up to or becoming parts of the last days Jesus warned of. And he said there would be even the rise of the Antichrist, this Christ-like figure who the world will pin its hope to to save the world. Finally, someone will come in to save the world. We see that's the Antichrist, but we know that even though he signs a seven-year peace agreement with Israel, that he will subsequently betray the nation of Israel in an event that is called the abomination of desolation, where he will set himself up in the temple to be worshiped as God, and then coming out of there will turn his sights against the nation of Israel, causing them to flee to the mountains for safety. All of these events we spent some time looking at, and it's the start of these events here that the rise of the Antichrist, the abomination of desolation, the persecution of believers, and so on. It's the start of these events, which many people think of when they think of the last days. They tend to be thinking of things like Armageddon and so on. 
And Jesus said, we're moving toward these things. Now, the disciples may have simply been, you know, they got out their calendars and they said, all right, what's the day? You know, so we can write it down. And Jesus went into a long answer. Again, they said, tell us when these things will be. And rather than giving them a date, Jesus gives them a whole lot more. He gives them a number of things that they can be looking toward. Now, as Jesus typically does, when he gives a bunch of information, he follows up that information with application. And so it's great that you read your Bible. I hope many of you have dug in and decided, you know what, this year I'm going to read my whole Bible this year. Or this year I'm going to read the New Testament a little bit every day. I'm going to make my way all through. And that's great. It's great you come to church and you sit and you listen to a Bible study. You're like, that was very interesting. But there has to be application to the material that you're studying. And Jesus would regularly do that. He would give information and he would follow it up with a point or points of application saying essentially something, all right, now what are you going to do with that information that I've just given you? How will this affect you? And as we move now into chapter 25, I think one of the last verses of chapter 24 really nails down what the Lord wants to do with this information. And so chapter 24, verse 42, he says, therefore, so all this information came, therefore do this with that information, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. That's the application. You have all this information. You have all your charts. You've studied all your end time material. The application for all of that is to stay awake. To be ever vigilant. Because you do not know when your Lord is coming. The Lord is coming at an hour that you do not expect, the scripture says. And like the days of Noah, the world will be going about its daily routine. We will be marrying and we will be giving in marriage. Nothing wrong with that. It's just a daily routine of things. Marrying and giving in marriage. Eating and drinking, he talks about. Getting up and going off to work and making plans for what you're going to do on the weekend when you have that time off. The normal things of life until suddenly it will all come to a close and then it will be too late to alter course. And so the only solution, the only logical and wise thing to do to ensure that you are ready when that day comes is to be ever vigilant, to remain awake and to be ever vigilant that today might be that day. And so as we move now to chapter 25, Jesus is going to give us a series of parables or parabolic statements. So we have two parables and a statement to follow after that in chapter 25. Today we're going to look at the first of those parables, which is called the parable of the ten virgins. And so it's the first 13 verses of the chapter. So let me read through it. So look in your Bibles at chapter 25, verse 1. It says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and they went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. But when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day 
nor the hour. So to make the point of chapter 24, verse 42, about being ever ready and being diligent, Jesus uses the example of 10 young bridesmaids preparing for the day when the bridegroom would come to take the hand of his bride and the marriage ceremony would occur. So these bridesmaids here, they're not getting married. They're not all brides. They're, they're called virgins in the passage. They're bridesmaids. They're friends of the bride. And they are, they're told to be prepared. Now, you should understand the, the wedding ceremony of the first century Jewish person, a little bit different from the weddings that you and I might attend today or plan today. First thing you need to know about the Jewish system of marriage, if you will, or the whole wedding process is, is that the wedding took place in three stages. And those stages are engagement, betrothal, and then finally the wedding. Let me go through those real quick. Now, engagement was the formal arrangement typically done by the parents, the formal arrangement done by the parents that these two would get married. This arrangement, this engagement could take place at a very early age when the boy and the girl are still very, very young. That's called the engagement. So that's different from our engagement. So don't picture it the same. This is the arrangement of the marriage. Kids could be five or six years old and the decision could be made. You know what? I like you. I'd like to spend time with you at Christmas time. Let's have our kids get married. All right. So that's the arrangement. That's the engagement. Now, the second stage is called betrothal. Some of your versions may use the word espousal. That's a little closer to our thinking of the idea of engagement. Betrothal was often, uh, oftentimes accompanied by a ceremony. Sometimes vows were taken at the betrothal ceremony. And if they weren't taken, they were certainly implied. Okay, so it's a little bit of a step up from our engagement that we're familiar with. Folks get engaged oftentimes and they decide, you know what, this is going to work out. Already, I already don't like you, and let alone when we actually get married. And so sometimes that occurs here. But here in the betrothal, a couple it really is almost as good as marriage. married, I mean. You can't get out of a betrothal. You can't get out of this espousal unless you issue a certificate of divorce. So it's certainly a step up from what we think of. And a betrothed couple was as good as married, although they did not yet live together and they were not yet intimate with one another. So you have engagement, first stage, betrothal, second stage, and then the third and final stage of the process would be the wedding ceremony. And the wedding would take place about a year after the betrothal ceremony. But what's distinct about this process here in the Jewish culture is, and different from our culture, is they would not set a date for the ceremony. So one of the first things we do in our culture is we pick a date. Not everybody, but many people. We pick a date and then we kind of work back from there. There, the date would not be picked. And so we would be betrothed to one another, and we know in the future we're going to get married, usually about a year later. And rather than setting a date, some nice time in the spring or early summer or something like that, or a fall wedding, whatever it may be, rather than setting a date, what would determine when the wedding would take place is how long it took the bridegroom to prepare a place for his new bride. That's what would determine when the marriage would take place, when the place they were going to live in was ready. So the process looks something like this. I'll give you the scenario. Two fathers watching their kids playing in a sandbox, handsome little fellow of a kid, pretty little girl or whatever. The one father turns to the other father and says, are you thinking what I'm thinking? 
And the next thing you know, they're shaking hands. The moms are over there. What happened here? You know, what is going on? All right, they're shaking hands. A decision. The kids have been engaged. 10, 15 years goes by. The kids are entering. They're mid to late teens, typically a little bit older uh, for the boy there. And the parents, realizing that their kids are ready, though no one is ever really ready for marriage, but realizing that their kids are ready, the parents decide, you know, it's time to take this engagement relationship to the next step to, to transition from engagement to betrothal. And as I mentioned, when the couple becomes a betrothed, there's usually a ceremony that takes place. There's sometimes even vows that are exchanged with one another. And from that moment on, depending on the wherewithal of the family, the father of the son would present to his son a parcel of ground usually alongside of where he lives or nearby where he lives, he would present to the son a parcel of ground and the son would begin building a home on that parcel of ground. And a home typically may have just been one room. All right, and so he would begin that process. And now the determining factor of when the wedding was going to occur between this betrothed couple is when the house is completed, when the place is done that he can bring his bride back to. So, if the guy is a good worker, and he's got some handy friends, and they're diligent about the whole process, and he saved up some money during the engagement time, well, then he can bang it out pretty quickly. If the guy, on the other hand, is a schmo, and he sits around, he plays video games all day, and he wastes his days away, well, then it's going to be quite a bit longer. He has to go and prepare a place for her. Now, I find this very interesting. I think this is the picture. I'm pretty confident. This is the picture Jesus has in mind. In John chapter 14, Jesus said to his disciples, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. You know, in the scripture, many of you know, in the scripture, Jesus consistently, or the scripture regularly refers to his church as his bride. I think that's the picture Jesus has in mind when he would go and prepare a place for his bride that he would come back and take his bride to be where he is. That's the context of what we're talking about in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. And so Jesus presents this picture, both in John 14, now here in Matthew 25, of himself being the bridegroom, his church being the bride that he will return to take to himself. In both places, these two things are true. Number one, he will return. And number two, his bride should be anticipating and preparing for his return. And so now going back and looking at this parable, look again at verse one. It says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Now again, these virgins are not the brides themselves that are waiting for their groom, but rather, to use a term we're more familiar with, they are the bridesmaids waiting for their friend's groom to come. Now, 10 might seem like a large number for a wedding party, but it's interesting Jesus chose that particular number according to the Jewish Talmud, and the Talmud was sort of like a commentary of Jewish life and culture. According to that uh, commentary. Ten was the typical size of a wedding party for a nice Jewish couple. And so Jesus says here you have these ten bridesmaids waiting for the coming of this groom for his bride. And his point, he's creating this scenario to drive home chapter 24, 
verse 42, therefore stay awake. So he's creating this ceremony or this scenario to drive that point home. He already has given various signs for his disciples to look to that would precede his coming. And we've talked about him again. Pestilence, famine, earthquakes, wars, the rebirth of the nation of Israel, the rise of the Antichrist and his betrayal of Israel. All those signs Jesus pointed to that would mark the beginning of the end of days. Again, verse 8 of chapter 24, the beginning of the birth pains. Signs that the last generation could look at, could take notice of, and as Jesus quoted in another place, they could straighten up, they could raise their head, and they could look to the skies because they knew that their redemption was drawing near. Uh, so, this whole discourse begins with the disciples asking a question. Jesus essentially responding and saying, all right, now that you know the signs of my coming, make sure you're ready for my coming. Now, in our parable here, sadly, only five of the ten bridesmaids were ready when the bridegroom arrives. Again, look at verses 2. Five of them were foolish, five were wise, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. Despite the fact that they knew the day was coming. From the day of the betrothal, they knew the day was coming. But it's a long way off. It's a year. Five months at least. And it could be longer than that, probably a year. But if they were smart, they would have looked at the signs. They would have saw that the, the foundation of the home was laid. They would have saw that the studs were going up for the walls and that the roof was being put on. They would see that the guys were bringing drywall in and out of the door and not coming out with drywall. And so apparently it's going somewhere. It's going up on the walls. They could have noticed all of these things. They could have said to themselves, obviously things are progressing. We are closer now than we were two months ago or three months ago. They should have been able to look at these things and begin to make preparations. But despite the fact that the signs were evident that the day was drawing near, they made no preparations. They were like those that the Apostle Peter refers to in one of his epistles. Peter says this in 2 Peter. They will say, where will be the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So despite the fact that the signs were indicating that we're getting closer, the five virgins convinced themselves that we've got time, but they didn't have time. And it's the same thing for many of the people that we interact with on a daily basis. Despite the fact that most people know that this world is falling apart and it's falling apart quickly, the majority of people think, oh, we got time. All things continue as they've always continued. I'll be fine. We got time. But they don't have time. And so when the bridegroom does come, these five foolish bridesmaids find themselves without the necessary oil for the procession of light, lights. So this groom here decides, you know what we're going to do? We're going to have this fun thing for our wedding. I do, I do somewhat a lot of weddings or so. And one of the things we find is every couple, they want to kind of put their little twist on it, something different so the crowd can sit there. Wow, those two, they're so creative. I love these two. I'm glad I'm friends with them or whatever. And so they all want their little twist here. This bridegroom, he, his little twist is, we're going to have a midnight wedding. I'd be asleep. I, I wouldn't be able to do the wedding. You know, no, you, you, good, you're married. All right, I'm going back to bed. All right, and so he decides to do a little twist. We'll do it at midnight. We'll all, they'll all have a lamp. We'll kind of parade through the streets at night, you know, dark streets, no street lights or whatever. It'll be kind of fun here. But these five, they didn't bring oil 
for their lamps. In their mind, because the bridegroom had been, in their opinion, delayed, they, draw, they convinced themselves that they have plenty of time to get ready. Again, but they didn't. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter. I want to read a passage here. This is taking it from the story, the parable, to straightforward commentary by the Apostle Peter. So 2 Peter is toward the end of your Bibles. It's just a little bit before the book of Revelation. So that'll be to your right. And in 2 Peter, we'll look at chapter 3. I'm going to read about 10 verses or so, a little bit more than that, to you. Because I think Peter says very clearly what Jesus is saying in this parable. Peter says this, starting in verse 1 of chapter 3 of 2 Peter. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. I'm not exactly sure what scoffing is, but... It doesn't sound good. No, I know what scoffing is. They're, they're mocking the idea of Jesus' return. It says in verse 4, they will say, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since our fathers fell asleep, we read this verse, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They will deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. The days of Noah. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So the Lord said that there would be destruction by a flood in the book of Genesis, and there was destruction by a flood in the days of Noah, in the book of Genesis. That same Lord said there would be destruction by fire in the last days. And he was right before and he'll be right again, Peter is saying. Verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come and it will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Now, here's the application. Since then, all these things are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? That is, oh Lord, please come today. And we can't bring it any quicker necessarily, but our hearts can long for it, hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Last couple of verses. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot and without blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom that is given to him. What Jesus is pointing out in the form of a parable, Peter very clearly states that in the last days, scoffers will arise that will mock the idea of Christ's return. 
they will reason, look, he hasn't come, he didn't come yesterday, and he didn't come the day before that, so why should we expect that he will come this particular day? And Peter, in the verse, he points out that the scoffers will conclude that his delay in coming somehow speaks to his inability to come, or that he will never come. And the reality is, if you want to use the word, his coming is delayed, we'll call it that, that his coming is delayed not because he's unable to come or because he never will come, but his coming is delayed so that people might have more time to repent. It's in his mercy that his coming has been delayed. Look at verse 9 again. He's not slow to fulfill his promise. He's not unable to fulfill his promise. He hasn't fulfilled his promise because he's patient, not wishing that any should perish. And it's in his mercy that his coming is delayed. But it should never be concluded that he will never come. He hasn't come yet, but it should never be concluded that he will never come. There are some that believe, Christians, quote unquote, that believe there's no such thing as hell. Because in their mind, they have decided, in their mind, they have decided, not the word, but in their mind, they have decided that God is a God of love and a God of love would never send someone to hell. Now, that's not biblical. In your mind, you might be able to go down that path and create that idea, but it's not biblical. And here, this idea that, well, God is a merciful God, so he'll never come in judgment. That's not a biblical idea. Just because he hasn't come yet, because of his mercy, doesn't mean he will never come. Jesus points out in the parable that bridegroom will assuredly come. There will come a day when the place that Jesus referenced is prepared. And as he promised in John chapter 14, he will come again to take his disciples unto himself. That's been the whole point of these last two chapters, this discourse from the Mount of Olives, so that the day would not catch his disciples unaware. Because again, as he says in 2 Peter, that day, the day of the Lord, will come. And again, I said this earlier, sadly, despite the signs that things are getting closer and closer, Peter makes it clear that the day will come like a thief, and then it will be too late. And so returning back to the parable in Matthew 25, we left off in verse 4, and having discovered that five of the bridesmaids were foolish, five were wise, we discovered that. The foolish bridesmaids, they brought no oil for their lamps. And so you look, continuing in verse 5, it says, As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and they slept. In the delay, they become drowsy and they sleep. In Noah's day, they got busy eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Again, not terrible things. They weren't, you know, killing kittens or something. They weren't running around doing horrible things. They just got preoccupied with other things. They got comfortable and they settle in. And in that comfort, they dozed off to sleep. I told you I went to see Star Wars and fell asleep. I went to see another movie Friday night. And this was one of those where the, the chair legs go up and, you know, you can go back. And I think it was about 30 minutes in or so, my wife's like, you're snoring, dude. You know what I mean? <laughs> I was like, oh, sorry. So again, another $15 nap uh, or whatever. But you get comfortable. You settle in. All things continue as they've continued before. And you find all of a sudden you drift off to sleep or you drift off into complacency, failing to recognize that the bridegroom is indeed coming look continue verse 6 at midnight there was a cry here's the bridegroom come out to meet him then all those virgins rose they trimmed their lamps the foolish said to the wise 
Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going to go out. But the wise said, there won't be enough for us. Go buy your own oil. It sounds rude or whatever, but it's the reality of things. Verse 10, while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. Those who were ready went in, and the door was shut. And as we said, he said he would return, and he did return. He planned a magnificent torchlight procession. He appears at the midnight hour. It's clear from the passage, it's an unexpected hour for all the parties that involved. All 10 bridesmaids are called off guard, so to speak. But as we see, five of them made the necessary preparations. So they didn't have to get ready for a specific moment because they were always ready. And that's how the Lord would have us to live. Always ready for his coming return. They may not have known exactly when he was coming, but they knew that he was coming. And so they made preparations to be ready whenever that might occur. Now, Jesus uses a picture here to demonstrate this preparedness uh, of them having olive oil for their lamps. Now, we don't, have, we don't run our lamps by olive oil. So we got this. Can you see it close enough or do we need to flick the light off or whatever? Can you just turn a couple lights off there just so we can see a little better? So it would be something like this, a vessel of some sorts. There would be a wick that would come out here where the fire is, obviously. I don't know if you can see there's a dark substance in the middle. That would be where the oil uh, would go. So how many of you have lamps like this at home? A couple of you like cute ones that you don't do anything with. They sit up on the shelves or something. Thank you, Dave. You can put the light back on, guys. Each virgin in the parable would have had a vessel of some sorts like this, where there would be olive oil that could be put into it and a wick which would protrude out of it that they would have been able to light. Now, what's interesting about that lamp Again, something we're not really familiar with is the wick itself wouldn't really burn, at least not from the, the perspective of it not being consumed. Top of the wick would certainly be charred, but it wouldn't be consumed. What was actually burning are the vapors of the oil that is down there that is kind of cons- uh, sucked up, if you will, into that wick. And so I came across this description of the process. It's an organization that deals with antiques up in the New York area, and they deal with antique lighting techniques. And so listen to this description. It says, there are many factors that are involved in the efficient burning of an oil lamp. The wick needs to be naturally absorbent, or it needs to have strong capillary action, how about that, between non-absorbent fibers. The liquid oil is then drawn up into the wick by the capillary action and vaporized by the heat of the flame. The burning takes place just above the wick as a thin layer of the liquid is present at the wick's surface. Because the liquid layer prevents oxygen from getting to the wick material, the wick itself doesn't burn up. Instead, it converts the top of the wick to carbon, which is often called char. So the wick itself doesn't actually burn if there's oil in the vessel. It sucks it up, so to speak, and it's burning the vapor. If you don't have oil in your lamp, You can light the wick, but it will only stay lit for the length of the wick. It's just like you're lighting a rope, and it's going to eventually burn itself out. It's the oil that actually allows the lamp to continue to burn, which is exactly what these women do not have. And so these women, these ladies, they could light their lamps. They could initially look like the rest of the ladies and look the part, But it was only going to last for a few minutes or so because soon the wick would burn out and their unpreparedness would be exposed for all to see. Now, throughout the Bible, oil is used as a picture of the Holy Spirit. And it's a good image to select 
a couple of just kind of comparisons. Oil, it lubricates and cuts down friction. And we know when you bring a bunch of sinners together, there oftentimes is friction. We rub each other the wrong way. But as the Holy Spirit is working in our lives, the book of Ephesians reminds us that the Holy Spirit brings a unity into the relationship between sinful men and women as we submit ourselves to him. So oil lubricates and cuts down on friction. Oil, particularly in times past, was used for healing purposes, and it was known for its medicinal properties. Even so, it's through the working of God's Holy Spirit in our lives that healing and restoration takes place. Oil can be applied as a sweet-smelling aroma or fragrance in a person. Even so, when the Holy Spirit is at work in a person's life, there's that sweet-smelling fragrance of Christ where people say, I don't know what it is about you, but I like you. Because they seek Jesus. That's what they like as he's being lived out through us. And as this parable demonstrates, it's through the addition of oil to the lamp that the lamps can burn their brightest and they can keep burning their brightest. Again, no oil and the wick will just be consumed in no time at all. Even so, the believer is only the light of the world when the Holy Spirit is present and doing what he does in the lives of his children. That's when the believer shines brightest and keeps on shining. So I don't think it's an accident that Jesus chooses to use this picture of a lamp and oil for this parable. What we know is this parable is part of this greater discourse on being ready for when the Lord returns. Specifically, this parable is meant to serve as a warning to those that are in and around the church. And it's you guys, you're all sitting in here now, and me. It's a warning to those that are in and around the church, small c, that may not actually be part of the church, capital C. So remember, the church, capital C, are all of those around the world that believe in the name of Jesus Christ and have come to him and said, you know what, I need my sin forgiven and you're the only one that can forgive my sin. That's capital C church. Small C church is Calvary Chapel, Mercer County. It's the Baptist church down the street. It's the church that's around the corner and so on. That's small C. But all of us that name the name of Christ, we are part of the same body of believers, capital C. And this warning again is meant to serve as a warning to those that are in and around the small C church. They may look the part, much like each of these foolish women were holding a lamp. They appeared to look the part. They appeared to be ready. It looked like their lamps were working and functioning, but in actuality they weren't. Now, after Jesus' resurrection, he instructs his disciples to go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of his coming. We read about it in Luke chapter 24, verse 49. He says, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. Stay in the city of Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. That promise he refers to as the Holy Spirit. We read about the coming of the Holy Spirit to the church in the book of Acts chapter 2. What the Bible makes clear from that point on, anyone that names the name of Christ is indwelt by God's Holy Spirit. We read in Romans chapter 8 a pretty clear statement of that. The Apostle Paul says, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, notice these words, anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to him. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, from the day of Pentecost on, the gift of the Holy Spirit was put into your life. He, he dwells within you. And what ultimately distinguishes a believer from an old unbeliever is the Holy Spirit. And so if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. And that's what will determine 
whether or not a person is ready when Jesus returns to, break it, to bring his bride to the place that he has prepared for them, or if you're not ready when Jesus returns. What ultimately determines that is whether or not you have the Holy Spirit. And so what this parable reminds us of is this, a person may look the part. You might be coming to this church and look the part of a Christian and not actually be a Christian. On the outside, you may look like you have everything together. You might be a regular here. You might even have a, a role here, a task here. I'm the guy who sets up the chairs. Sorry, Jim. I'm, I'm not implying you. Alrighty. In some churches, hopefully not this church, in some churches, even the leading officials of the church may, not, may look the part but not actually be the part. They may actually just be a nice, shiny lamp with no oil to keep the flame burning. Or as Jesus said a few chapters earlier, a whitewashed tomb, outwardly beautiful, but on the inside, full of death. And so in our parable, you have the foolish women. They do not have oil in their lamps. They're unbelievers. And thus they're not ready when the bridegroom comes. Okay, so that's my understanding of the passage. Those without the oil are those that do not have the Holy Spirit. All believers have the Holy Spirit. And so we're talking about unbelievers compared with believers. I, I emphasize that because over the years, there have been some that have drawn a different conclusion from this parable. There have been some that make the distinction that Jesus is not saying this is the parable distinguishing unbeliever from believer, but rather spirit-filled Christian from non-spirit-filled Christian. There, will, there are others that suggest that those that have the oil are those that have it all together at the time of Jesus' return. And if you, you may be a Christian, but if you don't have it all together when Jesus Christ comes back and you're in the middle of something, when he comes back, you're going to be left behind. I do not believe that's what Jesus is saying. I do not believe Jesus is setting up some tiers of super Christians and a lower tier of those that are going to have to really suffer, go through a purgatory of sorts until they're actually ready uh, for heaven. There are also some that say this parable is about those Christians that have the Spirit and demonstrate that by exercising the sign gifts and those that do not have the Spirit, which is evidenced by the fact that they don't uh, exhibit the sign gifts. Again, I don't think any of those are the point Jesus is trying to get at. Because again, all believers are indwelt by God's Holy Spirit. This is not meant to distinguish those believers that do have Him and those that do not have Him. Secondly... This can't be about people that have it all together because the reality is none of us have it all together. You can be in Christ for however long you want to be in Christ, many, many years, decades, and still realize you don't have it all together. In fact, what I'm discovering is the closer I grow to the Lord, the more he reveals how little I have together in and of myself. And so this certainly can't be about those that have it all together are going to be taken, but those who don't have it all together won't. This is not a parable designed to establish tiers differentiating good Christians from bad Christians. It's a parable designed to convey the need to be ready. And there's only one way to get ready, ultimately, for the return of Jesus Christ, and that's to recognize that you're a sinner and receive the gift of salvation, forgiveness that is offered through the cross of Jesus Christ. And I want to draw your attention to three final things. And remember, I didn't have a first service to get tired, so I can just keep on going. Alrighty? Three things I want to draw your attention to. It'll be rather quickly. First is this. 
Notice that at the coming of the bridegroom, there's no question as to what needs to be done. At the coming of the bridegroom, there's no question as to what needs to be done. Verse 7 says, Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And even so, at Jesus' glorious appearing, there will be no doubt as to who he is and what he requires of every one of earth's inhabitants. It says in the book of Philippians, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess because they will know what needs to be done, that he's the one that needs to be glorified. There will be no debating, no arguing the case, no running and hiding and getting away with something. Every person, the scripture says, will be laid bare and exposed before him to whom we have to give an account. The Hebrew says this, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked, all are exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so realizing that they have a problem, but knowing what they need to do, the women of Jesus' parable, they go to the fellow bridesmaids, the wise five of them, and they ask of them, really they demand of them, to share some of the oil with them. We see that there in verse 8. But notice what verse 9 says is they can't share the oil. They're not allowed to share the oil. They're not able to share the oil. They said, there will not be enough for us and for you. Go to the dealers and buy it for yourselves. They can't because then there wouldn't be enough for them. And that's the second point of application from this parable. And that is this, that a person cannot borrow another person's salvation or another person's Holy Spirit. So because a wife is saved doesn't automatically mean the salvation transfers over to her husband. Because her mom or dad has had their sins forgiven, that doesn't mean that their grown children will have their sins forgiven by matter of ancestry or something like that, that it's passed down. Because the overwhelming number of folks in a room like this may be saved, it doesn't necessarily mean that another, or it doesn't mean at all, that another will inherit the gift of eternal life somehow on their coattails. Salvation is not something that can be borrowed or transferred from another. Each one of us must have our lamps trimmed and ready. That is, we must have that supply of oil, the Holy Spirit, for when the bridegroom does come. Second point. Now, the third final point of application. The time to prepare yourself for the coming of the bridegroom is now. Look at verse 10. While they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. So for those that think, look, I'll deal with it when the time comes, let this parable speak to the, the, this truth into your life. It will be too late to deal with it when the time comes. Because then the door will be shut, and the banquet will be closed, and no matter of knocking or pleading will be able to fix that. Look at 11 and 12 there. It says, afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I don't know you. Today is the day to make proper preparation. And so through the use of parable, Jesus drives home the point that he's been making now for two chapters. He's coming. His return is certain. Here are some of the signs of that return. And so what manner of life ought you to be living? And Jesus provides the answer. Verse 13 Watch therefore, for you know not, for you know neither the day nor the hour. What sort of life ought you to be living? Live expectantly, live vigilantly, as if this could be the day that the bridegroom comes to take his church. And most especially, if you've not received the gift of God's Holy Spirit, 
and you've not placed your faith in the work of Christ on the cross to pay the penalty for the price of your sins, if you haven't done that, you are not ready for Jesus' return. But you can get ready by receiving the gift of salvation that he offers to you. Because he comes at an hour that we least expect. Verse 44 of the last chapter said, For this reason you must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And I exhort you in humility, not trying to be an arrogant jerk or anything like that. I exhort you in humility. There's one way to get ready, and that is receive the gift of salvation that Jesus Christ offers. If you've never done that, do that today, because this could be the day that Christ returns for his church. Amen, my friends? Let's pray. Father, we, some of us delight in that reality and that truth. Lord, some of us, we, we kind of, we go through life and we say, oh, Lord, please be the day. And yet a lot of us, Lord, things are pretty comfortable here. We're doing very well. And there's an aspect of our hearts that maybe we wouldn't say it, but we kind of hope, I like it here. I hope he doesn't come yet. And Lord, we see in this passage that such thinking is a dangerous way uh, to think about your return. And so, Lord, we pray that you would stir up the hearts of those of us that might think that way. Lord, to fix our eyes on heaven, longing for you to come quickly. And Father, we pray for those that are with us that they know I'm not ready for him to come back. I haven't dealt with my sin problem. And so when the Holy One returns, I'm going to be in trouble. And Father, I pray for them. I pray right now that you would convince them of two things, their sin but also that their sin can be forgiven. And Lord, just cause the light to go on in their heart, their mind, so to speak, that they'll call out to the only one that can save them, they'll call out to Christ and ask for you to, to wash them clean of their sins. Give them the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, may these words be a challenge to each of us to take inventory of where we are with you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All the Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.